right. Well, good morning, Doc. So you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Man, it's, uh, it's great to see you guys today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open up to Luke chapter 10. We, we say this pretty frequently that, man, if you, if you don't have a Bible and you've been kind of journeying with the, the Doxa family, we'd love to give you one. All right, so on the welcome table on your way out, you can, you can grab one. And, and this is just part of what we do as we gather. We gather to worship and we gather to worship through song. And we also gather to worship by hearing God speak to us and then asking him to help us to go and to live out the things that, that we hear. And so we're in Luke chapter 10 today. And we've been journeying really since we, we started this church several months ago uh, through Luke's gospel, okay? And uh, essentially what we've been doing as we've been going through Luke's gospel is we're, we're trying to understand the Jesus story. And we're, we're seeking to understand the Jesus story really with the hope of like, man, understanding what, it, what would it look like for us to live in light of this in our day and time in our city of Madison, all right, what does this mean for us? And last week, we, we reached this major turning point in, in Luke's gospel where we, we read the account of Jesus. And he, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And really, this is a, a big hinge point in, this, in Luke's gospel, okay? Because from this moment until the middle of the 19th chapter, all right, Jesus is on the road. All right, and he's on the road, and he's walking to Jerusalem. And as he's walking to Jerusalem, he's really ultimately walking to his death, that he's, he's marching to the cross to die in our place for our sin and our salvation. All right, this, this big moment, okay? Now, he, as he's on the road, here's what's happening. As Jesus does, he's, he's on the road and he's teaching his disciples. And not only is he teaching his disciples, but everybody that he meets, that he crosses paths with, he, he's teaching them. And as we open up the Bible, guys, we, we know that this is God's word to us, right? And so not only is he teaching his disciples and he's teaching the people that he interacts with, but he's ultimately speaking to us and he's teaching us something about himself today. All right, this is where we find ourselves. And one of the big issues that we're dealing with, guys, as we get into chapter 10 today, is we're continuing the same theme of this, is what does it take to be on the road with Jesus? I want you to write that down. If you didn't write it down last week, put it in your Bible, write it somewhere on your hand, your forehead, whatever you want to do. This is the big question that we're dealing with, is what does it take to be on the road with Jesus? Because this is really, I mean, when we talk about the Christian life, I mean, it's not that we just gather here because Jesse is a great worship leader and we have some lights and stuff, but we're trying to figure this out, is what does it look like for us to be on the road with Jesus and to walk faithfully with him? And what we're going to see today, guys, is this, is that Jesus is going to meet a guy as he's on the road who's got some questions, all right? And he's got questions just like many of us in this room today and around our city. We have questions when it comes to God in eternity. That's what this guy has. And the question that he has, guys, is, is one of the, that I believe that every single one of us has asked at some point in our life. All right? It might even be the question that you're asking that has brought you here today. All right? and, and, and he asks this question and Jesus answers this. And as, as he does this, we're given insight into the demands that being on the road with Jesus will cost us, all right? But here's the question, okay? Verse 25 in Luke chapter 10, look at this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to underline that, okay? This is the question. This is what we're dealing with. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, he's on the road to Jerusalem and he crosses paths with this lawyer, Okay, and in lawyer, it's, it's significant for us to understand that it's also understood that he is a scribe, all right, a, a religious leader or, or an expert in the law. Okay, so he's not just a, a lawyer in terms of being an expert in civil law, but this man, he's an expert in the law of God as well. 
All right, so this man that Jesus is talking to, he's, he's really just a theologian. He's a religious leader of the time, and he would have been an expert in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, okay, also called the, the Pentateuch. All right, and so this man, he's just this legal expert added on top, this, this Bible expert, and he stands up to talk to Jesus. And he says, teacher, and he asks him this question of eternal life. Now, here's what we need to understand, okay? When it comes to, to questions, there's essentially two ways that people ask questions, all right? First, it's as a genuine learner, all right? That, that some of you in this room, that you're, you're a genuine learner. And these types of people, they're, they're genuinely looking to learn and to get input and information, all right? These people, they ask questions for the sake of, of wrestling with it and trying to figure out, man, what does this mean in my life? Because they really, really want to know what is true. And they genuinely want to learn. The other type of, of question asker is that of a hostile cynic, all right, that these people, generally speaking, tend to be very prideful. And they ask questions, all right, not because they want to learn anything, because they already think they know all the answers, but they ask questions so that they can show you how much knowledge that they have. All right, and they ask these questions to try and catch the teacher and make them look dumb so they can, they can really elevate themselves. And for those of you who are teachers, all right, I, I used to be in the education world, and, and if you're a teacher, or even if you lead teams of people, right, you're oftentimes finding yourself in like Q&A times, right? And you've learned as you ask questions to the teams that you lead or the kids that you teach, right, that you, you, as you ask these questions, you've been able to discern an individual who's actually a genuine seeker or a hostile cynic, right? And especially around the Bible, okay, as I've led Q&A times, especially around the Bible among college students, right, you, you always come across like the, the same cynical people with the same cynical type of questions, right? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it, right? Did Adam have a belly button? All these things. Were there, was there a dinosaur in the ark? You know, all these different questions. They, they try, these people don't want to learn, but they're just hostile. They're trying to, to push up themselves and push the teacher down. All right? and I say all that to say, guys, that there's a big difference between a genuine learner and a hostile inquirer. Now, look at our guy. What is this guy? Guys, he's hostile. Now, this is a religious leader who's trying to get Jesus to misstep. He's trying to get Jesus to say something wrong so he can use it against him and bring him down. All right, he's testing Jesus. He doesn't want to learn from him, but he's testing him with this question. And if you look back to verse 25, the wording shows us this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to what? To put him to the test. All right, and I want you to circle that word test because it's significant. It's the same word that's used earlier when, when Satan tests Jesus in the wilderness. All right, and Jesus tells him what? You should not put the Lord your God to the test. It's the same verb. It's the same word that's used here. So this man is actually not trying to learn from Jesus, but he's hostile towards him. Now, this is a really important thing to remember, okay, because it's going to inform all this interaction that Jesus has with this guy. But regardless, guys, of the posture of this question, I want you to know that it's a really, really significant question. All right, honestly, I, I would say that this is the most important question that you will ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, think about it, that if there is, in fact, eternal life, how do we get it? Have you asked that before? I mean, some of you, you're, you're asking that question right now, and that's what brought you here. I would just talk to a guy a few weeks ago, not involved with DOXA, has a friend that comes to DOXA, and, and through life circumstances and different things that have happened around him, 
he's asking these questions. He says, he even told me, he's like, I just lie awake and I say, there's got to be something more than what I'm experiencing. And the fact that I'm alive and I'm thinking all this stuff, I think that there's got to be a God who's trying to teach me something. And he couldn't understand why it was that he was even having these thoughts, so much so that he came out to hang out with a pastor who could have been a complete whack job, right? And he might actually think that about me. I don't really know, but right? He, come, he came to seek me out just to talk to me about it. And I remember, I'm like, I told him, I'm, dude, I'm not Dr. Phil or a fortune teller or anything like that. I don't know what your dreams are saying or all this stuff. But what I can tell you this is in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that God puts eternity in the hearts of humanity. And he does this. He puts eternity in our hearts so that we would pursue and seek after God. And so even as you guys ask those questions of eternity and wondering why, what is out there? What's something bigger? Like you're having these thoughts that are drawing you to God. God did that for you, for your good, that even in the midst of your brokenness, that you would still have some type of thing inside you that makes you want to pursue after him so that he can save you and change your life. So the question that this guy is asking Jesus is a very, very relevant question. It was relevant in Jesus' time and it's relevant today because so many people are asking and wondering, what's, what's eternity like? What, what's with this eternal life? And, I, and, I, and what do I need to do to get it? And I want you to look at what Jesus says to him. Look at verse 26. And he said to him, all right, the guy asked him, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? All right, so Jesus, he, he knows this guy is an expert in the law. He, he knows that he's not genuinely asking this question to learn. And so he responds to this guy's question about eternal life by asking him another question about the law. And as Jesus asks this question, he's essentially asking, okay, how do you understand the Torah? All right, the, the law that you've studied your entire life, the law that you've, you've committed to memory, because these religious leaders in these days, they would, have re, they would have memorized for the most part the first five books of the Bible. And they, they knew it, all right? He had studied it. And so Jesus is now asking him this personal question. Okay, you know the law. You know the answers. At least you think you do. What do you think that it says? It's this personal perspective. Look at 27. And he answered, the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, Guys, the lawyer, knowing the Old Testament, all right, has actually given a really, really great answer. All right, he's saying, okay, here's what you need to do. If you want eternal life, you just need to love God with all that you are, and you need to love others that same way that comes out of the love that you have for God. And guys, he's right. That to be on the road with Jesus, we need to love God, and we need to love people like that. And not to spend too much time on this, but he mentions four dimensions of our humanity, okay? And this, just to kind of give you just a, a, a snapshot of what this is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. What is your heart? It's where you hold your deepest convictions, right? This is like the throne or the seat of your emotions, okay? This is that. But he says, with all of your soul. And the soul is really just the eternal aspect of all of us. It's the immaterial part of our being and really the real you, and then he goes on to say, with all of your strength, what is this? What's your strength? The strength is all of your ability, your energy. It's everything that you're able to do to love God in that way on your own. And all of your mind. And it's pretty clear that what he's saying, it's with all of your intellect, with all of your reason, with all of your understanding. And so to love God in this way that this guy says, it means to love God completely and holistically with everything that you are. And I want you to hear this all of the time. 
All right, and what this expert in the law is doing is he's really just laying out a summation of the entire Old Testament law. And as he's doing this, he's, he's pulling from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the Shema, which every good Jew would, would repeat and pray every single day. And then he's adding on Leviticus 19. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. It'll come up here on the screen. The Shema says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. All right, so Jesus says, what do you think? What does the law say? He sums it up and says, this is the first thing you need to do. But then he adds on Leviticus 19, and he says this in verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus gets asked this question, how do I have eternal life? Jesus asks, well, what do you think? This man says, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what Jesus says, verse 28. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Pause. Does that bother you at all? I mean, I hope in some way that as you know your Bible, right, that it causes you to stop and be like, huh. Because I doubt, I'm pretty sure that if any of us were asked this same question, we would not respond like this. Right? I mean, if a coworker came up to you at work and they said, hey, I know you're a Christian and you love Jesus and all that stuff. I'd really like to go to heaven with you. How do I do that? Most likely you wouldn't say this. You wouldn't say, well, you know what? Here's what you do. Just love God, love people, and you're going to be great. Right? Most likely you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. Right? You'd probably want to say, well, you don't have to do anything. Like It's already been done for you. Just have faith. Because when we would say just love God and love people, this sounds a lot like a works-based salvation, and we know that it's only by grace that a person is saved. And if we don't know our Bible well, you can read this passage and kind of cherry pick a verse and we can hear Jesus's response here and say, okay, so what this means then is anyone who meets this standard of love doesn't need grace. That if I really do love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind and with all of my strength, and I really do love my neighbor as myself, then I really don't need forgiveness. I really don't need grace. And I really don't need God to get to heaven. I can just do it on my own. I can just, I can just go. And what Jesus is doing here to this prideful man who thinks that he knows everything is he's saying, okay, you know the law, you know what you need to do. You think you can do it. Now go ahead and just do it. And you're going to live. And guys, I want you to know this. Here's what happens to people today who think like this lawyer. All right? Notice this lawyer's wording in his, in his question about eternal life. Look back. What does he say? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He has the understanding that in eternal life is all about what he can do. All right, that it's about him. He gets to heaven. It's what do I need to do so I can get to heaven? And guys, there's churches. Some of you, you grew up in these types of churches that they preach this way. All right, they focus solely on the law. And they preach in a way that they spend all their time telling you what you need to do. They tell you all the time what you have to do and all these things. And, and, they, and when they do this, as they preach this way, inevitably they produce two types of people. All right, the first type of person that they produce are really arrogant people, like this lawyer. All right, and these people, they'll think, love God, love people. Okay, I, I got that. I can, I can do this. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love God. It's going to be great. And they're going to look at people around them, 
and their standard of what their life should be like about their walk with God and who they are as a person becomes on all the people that they survey around them. And they'll say, okay, I'm way better than that guy. That guy over there, he's greedy, he's racist, he, he doesn't like people. I'm way, way, way better. I'm not like that, and so I'm good. And the constant preaching of the law can somehow get people so twisted up in a way that they think they can qualify themselves for eternal life. All right, there's a guy, his name is Tim Keller. Right, he's a pastor and an author, and he writes, and he talks about it like this in the terms of, of moralistic behaviorism. People like this, they believe that it's all about them being moral and affecting their behavior. And they think that, man, if I am just a good person, if I can just walk in such a way every single day to clean up my life and be nicer to people and become more and more generous and throughout my life that eventually I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to be a good enough person. My morals and my behavior will line up and I'll finally be able to get myself eternal life. Come very arrogant. Now the other type of person this produces, guys, is the one who hears this more accurately. And it doesn't produce arrogance, but it produces profound sadness. Because right, they hear that command to love God with their entire being and to love their neighbor as themselves. And they think, there is literally no possible way that I can do that. And may, yeah, maybe there, there's times in like a worship service where the music is great and like the lights are perfect. And I feel like I'm really praying and worshiping God and I'm like giving him my whole heart. And it's like, I'm there. And in that moment, I'm like, I feel like I'm loving God with everything that I am. But if I think about the vast majority of my life, the, every single hour of my day-to-day -day life, I am nowhere near capable of loving God in that way. These people also think about how they love their neighbors as themselves. Right? And they're thinking, I can't even love my spouse and my kids like that, let alone my neighbor whose dog defecates in my yard three times a day, right? Do you guys do, don't, if you have a dog person, don't do that, okay? <laughs> Different sermon, right? I'm trying, that's just my brokenness, right? I have a neighbor, like, I have like 10 neighbors like that, okay? Right? But as they understand this, all right, their life is just filled with despair and profound sadness because they know. They can't do it. They can't do what the law is asking them to do. And you need to know this, guys. This is the actual position of every single person on this planet. That if the standard to getting with God for eternity is to love God with all that we are and to love people as ourselves, then you and I, we will never qualify ourselves. And we will not be with God in his presence for eternity, but will be without God in the conscious reality of hell. This is just the, the state of being of me, you, and every single person when we try and do it this way. And so why, guys, we have to ask questions when we read this. Why does Jesus answer this guy like this then? I mean, you thought about that? Why doesn't Jesus just correct this guy's theology and start like a, a debate, right? Because Jesus certainly knew the Bible better than any human expert of the law. But why this approach? Why doesn't Jesus be like, oh man, you don't need to do anything. Just believe in me and you're fine. Why? I think, guys, it's because Jesus knows that this man is so prideful that he didn't just need to be instructed, but he needed to be humbled. Right? That he was proud. And Jesus knew that his pride would keep him from learning anything and from going to God. 
And Jesus could have entered a debate with this guy, and he could have corrected his theology and could have won that, that theological debate, but in the midst of winning that theological debate, he might not have converted this man's soul. And this was his goal. In Luke 19, Jesus says this. It's the goal. He came to what? To seek and to save the lost. And so it's not about arguing. Some of you guys, you're, you're just like, that's your approach to God and your approach to loving people is you just want to argue and someone says something, you're just waiting for them to say the wrong thing theologically and you're just going to pounce on them with all your, your Awana trivia bowl stuff, right? And you're just going to go and you're going to be like, well, actually, this is what the Bible, right? No. Jesus' approach is, is really great. And in his infinite wisdom, he speaks to this man as an individual because this is what God does. As Jesus interacts with people as he's going through on the road, right? He's speaking to people as individuals and he still does. And he knows the issue in this man's life that doesn't even make it onto the pages of Luke's gospel here. And he knows that pride is so significant that it's tearing him away from God. And so in his infinite wisdom, what he does is he affirms, Jesus affirms that the law is good. And he says this in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to what? To fulfill the law. And so he looks at this man, he affirms that the law is good. He tells the lawyer, you know it, now go and do it. All the while knowing that as this lawyer truly thinks about doing this, it's going to do something profound in his life. Because Jesus doesn't just appeal to this man's intellect, right, but he appeals to his conscience in the hope that it will rattle his intellect and cause him to begin to think differently. Because it's likely, guys, as this lawyer is hearing this, he, he probably doesn't understand how far away he is from fulfilling these commandments. It's likely he just kind of spouts off this first command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's thinking to himself, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm doing well. And this wouldn't have been weird because back in these times, all right, many conservative Jews in, in Palestine, they really thought that they could really actually love God in this way by following the formalities of the law. And so this lawyer, this religious teacher, he's probably thinking to himself, I'm pretty good at observing the kosher food laws. I'm, I'm pretty good at following the rules with all the celebrations and the feasts. And I go to the, go, to, go to the temple on the times that I actually need to go. I've been studying the law and the Torah for the majority of my life. I've, I've memorized it. I'm a really, really good student. And so he's probably thinking on the loving God side, I'm better than pretty much anybody around me. And so I'm probably pretty good here. Now I want you to see what happens. On the neighbor side, we start to see that I think he's beginning to have a few twinges in his conscience, thinking, okay, maybe I'm not really so great. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, I want you to circle justify himself. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, so it's almost like he's thinking about, okay, I'm not, I don't know if I can really do this, but okay, so just tell me, who's my neighbor then? Because I think I can do this, but he's trying to justify himself. And he does this, because I really believe that he's, he's realizing that he can't love people like that. And guys, this is what the law does in our life. This is what the law in the Bible is for. It points us to the reality that we can't live up to the standards of God, and we need a Savior, and we need someone to come and justify us for our sin. This is the gospel. This is what this lawyer doesn't understand at all. And we need to be reminded of this, guys, that the very beginning of salvation and eternal life with God is that we're justified by someone else. 
All right, that God, through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, he justifies us. He forgives us of our sins. It's not that Jesus comes to Rob Warren and says, you know what? You're really, quite, you're really good. I'm kind of impressed, right? You're, you're great, man. You're loving me, and you read your Bible, and, and you're actually, you're loving that guy whose dog defecates in your yard. Every, like, you're doing great. Like, I'm, good job. And gives me the pat on the butt and keep going. No, he comes to me, and he says, you are more broken and sinful than you can even imagine. You have some serious issues. You don't even know how sinful you are. You're broken. But at the same time, I love you more than you can even fathom. And I declare you through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and your faith in him as not guilty and as righteous in my sight. All because of Jesus, not because of you. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel that this lawyer understands nothing of it. And so he asks this question to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? And he, he knows this. Guys, remember, he's an expert in the law, so he knows the answer to this, right? It comes in, we just read this in Leviticus 19. It's going to come up again. Look at it again. It comes from the, the Old Testament. He knew the answer. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, here's what happened in, in ancient Judaism, all right? What happened was this, is that Jews had come to interpret this phrase, love your neighbor. Look at that in, that, in Leviticus 19. They came to interpret love your neighbor in light of the previous phase, your own people. All right, so that, so that when you were determining who your neighbor was and who it was that you were supposed to love, it was those that were like you. It was those who believed the same things as you, that had the same kind of beliefs and outlook on life. They had the same type of job. It was like a very nationalistic principle. They, they disregarded what it said, just to, what God tells them just a few verses later. And so the Jews were happy to love other Jews, right? provided that there was no one different. But as they did this, they completely neglected. Look at Leviticus 19.34, just a few verses down. They forget this. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so guys, I want you to know this. The issue of loving your neighbor is that we're to love everyone. Period. And Jesus, to show the lawyer this, he shares a story, all right, that we call the parable of the Good Samaritan in verse 30. All right, so this, this lawyer he, he asked this question about eternity, and then he asked another question about who's my neighbor, and this is what Jesus says, verse 30, look at Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, I want you to circle stripped, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, circle that, first guy, who was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, circle that, number two, the second guy, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, circle that one, that's our third guy. As he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Circle that. I'm just going to keep telling you to circle stuff, so just keep your hand ready, okay? He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
So let me just unpack this really quickly, and this is going to bring us to an application for what this actually means for us today, okay? The road to, from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long, and it was a really rugged terrain, all right? There was a lot of caves and rock formations along the road, which made it ideal for, for thieves to, to hide out, all right? So thieves would, on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, would hide out on this road, and they would wait for people to come by, and they would jump them, they would beat them, and they would take all their stuff, all right? And so this man was just on this journey, on this road. He gets attacked, he gets beaten, he gets stripped of all of his stuff, even his clothes, okay? Now, guys, when you read the Bible, we, we talk about this all the time. Details are important. And the details here are, are really, really significant to Jesus' point. The fact that this man was stripped, here's why I told you to write stripped, okay? It meant that you couldn't identify the type of person this was. Because in these days, in first century society, guys, it was a highly structured society. And different groups of people, different types of people could be identified by the types of clothing that they wore. And so the fact that this man was stripped, Jesus is making the point that it doesn't matter what type of person this is, where he comes from, his background, his job, it doesn't matter any of this stuff, he's just a man. He's, he's representative of all people. This is the point that Jesus is making. And so this priest comes, and he comes up to this man on the side of the road, and he can't tell anything about him. He can't tell if he was really important, if he was significant. He doesn't know if he's a fellow priest or if he's just a bum, low-life loser that he should stay away from. He doesn't know. And even more, he's, he's probably thinking, we don't know a ton, but he's probably thinking, okay, if this is a guy that just got jumped, that means that there's thieves in this area, so I probably don't want to hang around here too, off, or too long and, and help this guy because these thieves can come back and they could jump me as well. Now, on top of this, since this guy was a priest, we know that there were strict rules for priests that would make them ceremonially clean or unclean. And so this guy is, is likely thinking that, okay, I don't know who this guy is, I don't know the state of what... He's about, and if he's dead, and I, if I touch him, it, could, it can make me ceremonial unclean. It'll just ruin my life and my, my daily rhythms for a while. And what he does is he do, thinks about all of this stuff. He's just like, okay, I'm just going to see that guy and walk along the other side of the road. And he totally passes him by. Now, a Levite's next. And being a servant to the priest, which is what a Levite was, he's having much of the same thoughts swirling around. And just like the priest, he goes to the other side of the road. And he leaves this guy. But then comes a Samaritan. And this is where the story changes, especially to a Jewish ear. Because among the Jews and the Samaritans, we talked about this last week, there was an extreme hatred for each other. And this started back in 722 when the Assyrians conquered the area of Samaria. And as the Assyrians conquered Samaria, the Jews living there, they intermarried with the, the, the Assyrians. They started having kids and the Jews began to think that they were just half-breeds religious apostates. They left their own way. So the Samaritans, they didn't like being called half-breeds. And so what they did is they said, well, you know, forget you. We're going to start our own thing. They started their own liturgical calendar. They started their own Bible. They, they moved the day of the Passover. They erected their own temple, in, which later was destroyed by conservative Jews in the Maccabean Revolution. They just hated each other. And so when Jesus introduced this Samaritan man into the story, this lawyer would have been hearing it, and he would have just been like, oh my gosh, this guy's a loser. He's probably going to get beat up too. He didn't even want to hear Samaritan. And there would be no way that he would ever think that a Samaritan would help anybody because Samaritans were low life, not even people, and worthy to live. But look back to the text. Jesus describes in detail 
what this Samaritan does. He bound up his wounds. He's likely using his own clothing to do this. He pours wine and oil on him, which were used for medicinal purposes back then. It would have cost this Samaritan something. And then he puts this guy on his animal, his donkey. And now this naked stranger is riding on his animal and he's walking, right? He's sacrificing. And he gets to this inn, right? And he gets to the inn and he tells the innkeeper, here, here's enough money. Scholars say that two denarii, which is the equivalent of like two days wages, would be enough for one to two weeks to, for this guy to stay there. And he's like, take care of him. I'll pay for everything. And if I come back and he still needs to stay here, don't worry. I'm going to cover all expenses because he knew that legally in these days that if this guy would to, were to stay in the inn longer than he paid for, he could be sold into slavery to make up what he owed. And so the Samaritan is picking up all costs indefinitely for this stranger. And guys, this is a picture of radical love. Guys, this is why our world that doesn't love God, that doesn't follow Jesus, this is why they love this story. Because it's this picture of, of radical love and people are like, oh my gosh, yeah, I want to be loved like that. We should love like that. There's something about we need to treat each other like this. And this is why we, we love the Good Samaritan story even outside of the church. Because we love the idea of love, not understanding where love comes from. But having told this story, Jesus, he asked the lawyer another question, right? And it's not the question we expect. Look back. Because the lawyer asks what? Who is my neighbor? He's essentially asking, who do I need to love and who can I just not love? And Jesus is like, no, wrong question. You need to know something. He doesn't give this, this list of people. He doesn't say, okay, here's 15 people that you need to love, all right? Blonde people, short people. Like, he doesn't just do that, right? I don't know, blonde and short, I don't know why I did that. But, you know, he doesn't give this extensive list of, like, here's who you need to love. But what he does is he flips the question, and he tells this story to say, who is the better neighbor? Look at verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus asks, do you think proved to be a better neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Guys, this is the issue. It's not who is my neighbor, but Jesus flips it on end and he says, it's not the right question. Here is how you be a neighbor. It's about extending love to all people. This is the point. And this is Luke's big point all the way throughout his gospel, that Jesus is good news for all people regardless of race, regardless of economic status, regardless of where you work, what you've done, all that stuff, all people. And the fact that this man was stripped and Jesus used this to show us this is who we are to love, all people. Guys, there's no prejudice. There's no racism. There's none of that. All that stuff is anti-gospel. It's all people. Now look at this. Look at the lawyer, how he answers this question in verse 37. The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy, and then Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This, this lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan because he's so filled with hate towards this guy. They don't like him. He can't even say Samaritan. So instead of saying the Samaritan did, which would be the natural response, he said, okay, it's the one who showed mercy. And guys, here's what you need to know. There's really only one major difference between the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. And it's this, is that the Samaritan is only one who has mercy and compassion. And so in effect, the Samaritan is the only one who has a heart. I want you to write that down. That's so significant to this. He's the only one that has a heart. 
And as we're talking about this in the context of, of loving God and loving neighbors, guys, neighbors are people with a heart that does more than just pump blood. It sees, it feels, and it serves. And here's what this lawyer undoubtedly is learning from Jesus. And guys, this is our big idea, is that to be on the road with Jesus, you need a new heart. You absolutely, every single one of us, we, we need a new heart. That the only way to truly be a neighbor and to love people as Jesus is laying out here is by getting a new, new heart. Because guys, here's what we need to know. That the vertical totally affects the horizontal. And what that means is this, is that your, your, your experience with love vertically with God, it affects the way that you give love horizontally to people. That your ability to love is largely based on your experience with love that you're really only able to give and to show the love that you've been experienced. The vertical affects the horizontal. And what we see throughout Luke's gospel and really the entire Bible is this, guys, is that those who turn to Jesus, Luke makes it clear later on in Luke 24, 47, that such people that turn to Jesus will receive not only forgiveness and love, but God's spirit who enables them to become a different kind of person who is able to love in this sort of way. And that truth, guys, drives what we do here at DOXA. That really, honestly, I've, I care very little about what you're doing right now in your life. I care about who you're becoming. Because if you become the right type of person, you're going to start to naturally do the right types of things. And so we're not going to sit up here and say, okay, you need to stop drinking and you need to do all this stuff and stop cussing and do... Sure, you need to start doing that, but the issue is not your behavior. The issue is your posture with God. It starts with the love of God, that if you become the right types of pers person, you're going to eventually start to do the right type of thing. The vertical affects the horizontal. And God, in his grace, when we come to him, he gives us his Holy Spirit that empowers us to live and to love like this. Have you, have you seen those types of people? I mean, the people that they just love in such radical ways, and you're like, I don't know how they do this. You see them, and, and they, they throw off sin, and, they're, and they live lives that are set apart and different, and you're wondering, like, how do they do that? It's not that these people are great at, at white-knuckling it, and they're very religious and all this stuff. It's that they surrender their life in such a way to the power of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit empowers them by his, his grace to live a life that they couldn't live, to do the things that we can't do by a power that we do not possess. Do we not possess? I was on a roll there. Right? But this is what the Holy Spirit of God does in our lives. He allows us to live in that way. To actually love like this, guys. And this love that we are empowered to give to all people around us is not, hear this, it's not for our salvation. It's evidence of salvation. This lawyer didn't get that. Look at what the disciple John says in 1 John. We know that we have passed out of death into life, into eternal life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's evidence. The way that we love is evidence of our connection with God. And so the bigger issue, guys, is our love for God and our experience with his love. This is where it all starts. This is where the Bible starts. This is where eternal life starts. This is where we need to start. It starts and is sustained with Jesus giving us a new heart by his love. So all of this Q&A with Jesus and this lawyer, our question has to be, what are we to do with this? The first thing I want you to see is this, is I want you to notice that this interaction ends abruptly right there. Jesus says, go and do it. 
and it just ends. We don't know what the lawyer did. We get the sense that this lawyer was probably like, oh my gosh, like his whole worldview was just blown up and flipped on end. And I can see him maybe for the first time thinking, I can't justify myself. I, I need a savior. This eternal life thing that I'm asking about that I thought I had a, a handle on and I was trying to trick Jesus, I think he's right and I need a savior. I can't do it on my own. And maybe some of you are in that position now. That you're realizing as you sat underneath Bible teaching, you've been in the Bible, you realize I can't do this thing on my own. I need a savior. And I want you to know as clearly as I can make it that if you want to be on the road with Jesus, heading towards eternity with him, you need a new heart. And God is so good that he does this in Ezekiel 36. Listen to this. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Guys, this is the issue. That because of our brokenness and our sin, we all have a heart of stone apart from God. And we're truly unable to love God and love people like this. And it keeps us from eternal life that this lawyer is asking us about. But two of the words I love in the Bible, but God. But God, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our heart of stone, he enters into human history as Jesus, lives a life that we couldn't live, dies a death that we should have died, and he gives us a new heart and enables us by his spirit to love him and to love people. And so some of you, you've been doing a great job examining Jesus as you've gathered here with Doxa and you've opened up the Bible and you've taken good notes and you're examining really, really well, but you've never experienced God giving you a new heart because you have not taken the step of putting your faith in Jesus. Today needs to be that day that God is breaking in and saying, it's that day for you. Now, secondarily, for those of you who do have a new heart, that you've come to Jesus, he's given you a new heart, a new future, you're on the road with him. Let me ask you this, is how are you doing with loving your neighbor? How are you doing with loving the people around you? Guys, Jesus is saying that people who are on the road with him and headed towards eternal life, they love God, they love their neighbor. And so who would God have you neighbor in love today? Who would God have you neighbor in love this week as you walk with Jesus? Are there people that just like the priest and the Levite that you walk right by? I mean, a lot of you guys, you, you walk down State Street every single week and you see these people in front of you that are totally different from you. Right? They have clear needs. They're homeless. They have a sign. And, and so many of us, I mean, I've been guilty of this too. You don't want to have that interaction because you feel something in you that says, I should help, but I don't want to. And so you just kind of like go to the other side of the street so you can avoid them. I mean, this is, this is the priest and the Levite that Jesus is saying, it's not quite right. Who is it that God would have you love? Are there people around you that need help? That you know it? But like the priest and the Levite, you're, you're thinking, man, if I, I know that I could enter into helping this person, but it's going to cost me something. And I, and I really have these plans. I'm, I'm making these plans. I got my money kind of lined up, and I don't really have like the room in my life to wiggle and help these people. And so you, you avoid them. Who is God asking you to neighbor and to love? Guys, it's all about how you see people. 
and I've talked about this a number of times, we all see people in one of three ways. It's either scenery, machinery, or ministry. Some of you, you see people as scenery. They're like trees on the side of the road that you just walk by. You don't really even notice them. They're just kind of there, and you just walk by them. You don't care about them. You don't love them. It's just whatever. Others of you, it's machinery, that you'll engage with people as long as they can do something for you. But what Jesus is talking about with this good Samaritan, it's ministry. It's living towards them like Jesus lived towards us. Guys, and we, the reality is, guys, is that we should all be like this, that we should all be just really, I was going to say good lovers, that's a weird thing, right? But yes, you get the point, right? We need to be loving well because we have been loved so well. When the gospel love is in you, it comes out of you. And so, guys, for us that are following Jesus, that are on the road with Jesus, we have a new heart, but we need to just repent because we haven't been loving people around us as well as we could, as well as Jesus would. And just ask him, help me to have a perspective of who to love. Let's pray. God, thanks for um, your word and thanks for even just helping us to see our hearts. And, and I pray for, for those that are in here that, man, that haven't come to you for a new heart. Spirit, would you just continue to speak? Show them the love that you have. Show them their need for a new heart, just like you did to me. And I pray that your love would just bring them to the foot of the cross. Where they would find you, they would find life, they would be given a new heart. And guys, for, God, for those of us that are just like, we're walking the road with you. We know, God, that we fall so short of your love and your desire for our life. But we know that you, you see us as spotless and perfect because of Jesus and our new heart. But would you just help us, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, to be conformed into your likeness, to be more and more like Jesus. We want to see the gospel go out. We want to see people know Jesus. And we know that one of the best ways that we can do this is not just by entering into debates and all this stuff, but it's to love. And so help us to be a church that's known for the way that we love, loving our neighbors in this city. And so speak to us as we sing these songs.